how do you explain that it's never inspiration that drives you to tell a story, but rather a combination of anger and clarity? How do you say, no, we don't find inspiration here, but we find a country that is as beautiful as it is broken, and we are somehow now part of it, so we are also broken with it, and feel ashamed, confused, and sometimes hopeless, and we're trying to figure out how to do something about all that. What drives storytelling? What is the story? Who gets to tell it? And how? In a twist on the American road trip genre, Valeria Luiselli's Lost Children Archive explores these questions. As an artist couple and their children embark upon a trip from New York to Arizona, wrestling with their family's crisis, a bigger crisis comes to them through the car radio. That of the tens of thousands of unaccompanied Central American and Mexican children arriving in the U.S. without papers. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and you're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of engaging talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Author Valeria Luiselli was born in Mexico City and grew up in South Korea, South Africa, and India. She was only able to write her new novel, she tells us in this talk, after writing a work of nonfiction first, Tell Me How It Ends. That book, a polemic about the U.S.-Mexico border, is structured around the 40 questions that she asked again and again as a volunteer court translator for undocumented children who were facing deportation. After Valeria's talk about these two works, she's joined by Florangela Davila, news director at KNKX, for a Q&A. This event took place at Benaroya Hall in April of 2019. This is Sal on Air. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. Oh, shit, there's a lot of people. <laughs> um... It's a beautiful night outside, so thanks for being inside here. I hope that this lecture and the conversation that follows takes you to other places as well as we sit here. I am going to start with a short reading. I'm going to be reading little bits and pieces from both Tell Me How It Ends and Lost Children Archive, which are two books that are deeply connected. We're driving across Oklahoma in early July when we first hear about the wave of children arriving alone and undocumented at the border. On our long westbound drives, we begin to follow the story on the radio. It's a sad story that hits so close to home and yet seems completely unimaginable, almost unreal. Tens of thousands of children from Mexico and Central America have been detained at the border. Nothing is clear in the initial coverage of the situation, which soon becomes known more widely as an immigration crisis, though others will advocate for the more accurate term, refugee crisis. As we drive from southwestern New Mexico toward Arizona, it becomes more and more difficult to ignore the uncomfortable irony of it. We're traveling in the direction opposite the children whose stories we are now following so closely as we get closer to the border and begin taking back roads, we do not see a single migrant, child or adult. We see other things, though, 
that indicate their ghostly presence, past or future. Along the narrow dirt road in New Mexico that goes from a ghost town called Shakespeare to another town called Animas, we see a trail of flags that volunteer groups tie to trees or fences, indicating that there are tanks filled with water there for people to drink as they cross the desert. Occasionally, we're overtaken by big pickup trucks, and it's hard not to imagine the men behind their steering wheels. Big men, vigilant, patriotic men who carry pistols and rifles by constitutional right and feel entitled to use them if they see a group of aliens walking in the desert. As we approach Animas, we also begin to see fleeting herds of Border Patrol cars like ominous white stallions raising across the horizon. We decide not to tell anyone in diners and gas stations that we're Mexican, just in case. But we're stopped a few times by Border Patrol officials and have to show our passports and display big smiles when we explain we're just riders and just on vacation. We have to confirm that, yes, we are riders, even if, yes, we're also Mexican. Why are we there? And what are we writing? They always want to know. We're writing a Western, sir. That's what we tell them, that we're writing a Western. <laughs> we also tell them that we came to Arizona for the open skies, and the silence and the emptiness. The second part, more true than the part about writing the Western, which is not true. <laughs> Handing back our passports, one official says sardonically, so you come all the way down here for the inspiration? We know better than to contradict anyone who carries a badge and a gun, so we just say, yes, sir. Because how do you explain that it's never inspiration that drives you to tell a story, but rather a combination of anger and clarity. How do you say, no, we don't find inspiration here, but we find a country that is as beautiful as it is broken, and we are somehow now part of it, so we are also broken with it, and feel ashamed, confused, and sometimes hopeless, and we're trying to figure out how to do something about all that. So I wrote that sometime in 2015, and I'm still trying to figure out how to do something about all that. Um, I, I went on a road trip with my family in 2014. I was trying to write a novel then about growing up in post-apartheid South Africa in the 1990s, and thought that I could use the road trip as a, as a space to think about my childhood in the 90s. I thought that the long drives and looking at maps and thinking about childhood would allow me to write this, but it turns out I'm not exactly the type of writer that can vacuum pack herself against the immediate present and then just conjure uh, the past or conjure fiction. So what actually happened on that trip is that I began documenting very meticulously the things that we, that we saw. And I began documenting more particularly a kind of sense of a landscape of, of abandonment, right? A, an America that I did not know and that somehow was in contradiction to 
the way that I had seen it through its documentation by, by previous generations, by Kerouac on his road trip novels, by Robert Frank in his photographic documentation of America. What I, what I saw and what I documented was the America of abandoned motels, of abandoned toys and front yards, of abandoned water towers, and diners, and people, and never shopping malls. They're never abandoned. Um, and I also started documenting the, the vastness and the, the relative emptiness of the very beautiful emptiness of, of the landscape, right? Those electric thunderstorms that surprise you in the middle of driving along a highway and somehow electrify your eye sockets and your brain. The, the landscapes of the, of the deserts with their creosote and jojoba and choya bushes kind of spreading out like prickly beauty into my native Mexico. I documented the military posts and the hovering military planes that are always landing somewhere, who knows why and what for. And the landscape of industrial farming as well, right? This land gang-raped by heavy machinery to extract resources, resources, resources. And as I, la as I documented the, the landscape, I also began documenting the, the soundscape around me, right? First of all, the accents, the changing and varying accents, the conversations in diners, the questions we got from strangers, why are you here, where are you from? And then the, the soundscape also of the family lexicon, right? what happens in the very particular space of a family enclosed in a car, two kids at the back seat asking weird-ass questions such as, who was the first person who milked a cow? Or, do the talking heads have hair? Or, was Oklahoma part of Mexico? Was Arizona part of Mexico? Yes, it was. Who were the blue coats? Who were the white eyes? And as I documented the family soundscape, the language of the world started coming in as well, into our enclosed space of, of privacy and relative aloneness. It came in through the radio that we are very devoted listeners of. And what we heard mostly on the radio, what was happening, was what hap was happening that summer uh, at the border. The, the crisis that then became to be known as the immigration or the refugee crisis. I'm going to read a little bit more a tiny fragment from the novel now, not from the essay, precisely about, or that somehow reproduces this collapsing of family lexicon into political discourse, or vice versa, political discourse, somehow penetrating the family soundscape. No one thinks of the children arriving here now as refugees, of a hemispheric war that extends at least from these very mountains 
down across the country into southern US and northern Mexico, sweeping across the Mexican deserts, sierras, forests, and southern rainforests into Guatemala, into El Salvador, and all the way into the Selaque Mountains in Honduras. No one thinks of those children as consequences of a historical war that goes back decades. Everyone keeps asking, which war, where? Why are they here? Why do they come to the United States? What will we do with them? No one is asking, why do they flee their homes? Why can't we just go back home, asks the boy in the back seat. He's fidgeting with his Polaroid camera, learning how to handle it, reading the instructions, grunting. There's nothing to take pictures of anyway, he complains. Everything we pass is old and ugly and looks haunted. Is that true? Is everything haunted? Asks the girl. No, baby, I say. Nothing is haunted. Though perhaps, in a way, it is. The deeper we drive into this land, the more I feel like I'm looking at remains and ruins. As we pass an abandoned dairy farm, the boy asks, Imagine the first person that ever milked a cow. What a strange person. Why? <laughs> Zoophilia, I think, but I don't say it. I don't know what my husband thinks, but he doesn't say anything either. The girl suggests that maybe the first cow milker thought that if he pulled hard enough down there, the bell around the cow's neck would ding-dong. Chime, the boy corrects her. It's chime. And then suddenly milk came out, she concludes, ignoring her brother. Adjusting the mirror, I see her, an ample smile, at once serene and mischievous. A slightly more reasonable explanation comes to me. Maybe it was a human mother who had no milk to give her baby, so then she decided to take it from the cow. But the children are not convinced. A mother with no milk. That's crazy, mama. That's preposterous, ma, please. Now, as we continued driving days and days and days on the road, the kids naturally started to get a little bit anxious and demanding of more kid stuff time. And so the options weren't many, and they were kind of freaky, like the UFO museums and things like that. And we ended up going for something that turned out to be not freaky, but deeply horrifying, which uh, were the reenactment towns of the border. Um, so I don't know about you, but reenactment is something that I find particularly bizarre. Just this kind of cultural practice of um, playing a fragment of history relevant or completely irrelevant, such as a gunfight between Billy the Kid and Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, over and over and over again in this town where it happened, but it keeps on happening over and over again. Um, and it's this kind of tool or event halfway between art form and, uh, I guess, product of mass consumption, roughly pedagogic. Um, and we ended up in Tombstone, looking at or watching this 
bizarre gunfight between, I think, Billy the Kid and Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. And they all killed each other, or they all shot at each other, and I think maybe no one got killed. And I got really, um, at some point, I got really annoyed. And I, it was my 33rd birthday, so I felt kind of entitled to alone time. Um, and so I left, and I ended up smoking a cigarette, I don't smoke anymore, um, with, with Billy the Kid. And we had a lovely conversation, Billy the Kid and I, until another Billy the Kid arrived, and that kind of uh, blew some neurons in me, like, Billy the Kid, Billy the Kid. I realized that the entire town was full of Billy the Kids and full of white herbs, reproducing, reproducing these scenes, and that it was perfectly possible for Billy the Kid to meet Billy the Kid. <laughs> and so we talked a bit more. They told me about the very difficult conditions of being a reenactor, uh, about the very low pays. I think they said it's like not even $30,000 a year to play Billy the Kid over and over. So one of them, they told, told me about one guy who did Mickey Mouse in Disneyland half the year, which pays really well, to be able to then do Wyatt Earp in Tombstone, Arizona. And then the last, the last I reunited with my family at the end of this horrific but very interesting day at the end, and we, um, the kids wanted to take one of those really um, cheesy family pictures, all like fake sepia, uh, dressed in the costumes of back then. And they gave us a menu to choose from. We could, we could be Billy the Kid, I don't know more Billy the Kid, uh, or Wyatt Earp, or Doc Holliday, or generic outlaw Mexican, or generic Native American. And then I thought, huh, okay, of course, this is what it's about, right? It's about, I mean, reenactment is about um, underlining uh, who gets a name in history, who gets mapped into the story, and who gets mapped out, who gets to have a name, and who gets to be some kind of like uh, ornamental lettuce on the side of the plate, right? Um, so anyway, I dressed as uh, something, uh, I think it was outlaw Mexican, and uh, we all chose our different costumes with our varying degrees of nationalism, post-nationalism, youth, age, etc. And that was it. And, and I began thinking about reenactment, um, not only really about reenactment as this very bizarre cultural practice, but also about reenactment as, as a more internal process, right? as a way of bringing history closer to one through playing it, through playing with it, right? a kind of almost philosophical or hermeneutical jump of bringing what seems very far closer. And as I began thinking of that, I also noticed that our children in the back seat were, in fact, always reenacting what they heard, be it on the radio or in the conversations that we heard or had, and they were mixing it all up. Uh, so they mixed blue coats with Border Patrol in their minds, it was the same thing. Um, and like, 
the Chiricahua Apaches and the Eagle Warriors with the, what they called the, the group of lost children coming into the U.S. without parents, looking for some form of as asylum. And that's, I think, where there was a twist or where there was a spark and there was a novel, a seed of a novel at least, right? Um, and I knew that I had to write a novel in which political reality and the, the private sphere of family life collapsed into each other. Because I think we've learned, if not many years ago, some of you definitely after the 2016 elections, that politics affects our private life much more than we maybe thought that our private life is, is not private, that, that, we, that we are uh, fundamentally modified and affected by what goes on around us, even if it's not our particular community that seems to be the object of political violence, right? But when there is political violence, the tissue of social interaction is hurt, and therefore everyone is hurt. So I started thinking about how, how to, write about, how to write about this exodus and this political crisis while at the same time writing about family life and how a family absorbs the shocks of politics. So we went back to New York. When we went back to New York at the end of the summer, I started working as a volunteer interpreter and as, a, as, a, as an interviewer for children who had just arrived in the U.S and were seeking asylum. Now, I'm sure most of you know, but I'll very, very uh, quickly s summarize what was really going on that summer, 2014. There had been a, s a peak or a surge of arrivals of children undocumented and uh, un unaccompanied. Between October of 2013 and that summer of 2014, 80,000 children had arrived alone at the border. And so the immigration crisis was declared, not, not so much on the basis of the crisis, the humanitarian crisis that that implied, but on the basis of the institutional crisis that that implied. What the Obama administration did back then was to declare uh, all the children that were seeking asylum as part of a priority docket basically a group of cases that have priority in court to be seen and resolved before other cases. What that meant in praxis, although it sounds maybe a good, like a good thing, was, was not a good thing at all. It basically meant that kids who, who were seeking asylum and traditionally had had one year to get a lawyer to defend them against deportation now only had 21 days. So you tell me which kid, undocumented, most, most probably with an undocumented family in the U.S. or a family member is going to find a lawyer in such a short amount of time. So volunteers across the country arrived in courts or in two organizations, nonprofit organizations, that just sped up the, uh, the process of finding lawyers for these kids. And I ended up in, in that, in that process. I ended up translating for kids and interviewing them 
um, through a series of, of questions from a questionnaire put together by nonprofits. And at the same time as all of this happened, I continued to write this novel. Um, and what happened, I, sh I should have maybe predicted, but I didn't, was that I started using the novel as a kind of vessel or a depository for my political frustration, anger, confusion. I started using it as a space as well into, in which to reproduce some of the testimonies that I was hearing in court until I noticed that I was writing a horrible novel and was also not doing justice to the subject matter because I hadn't found the, the right narrative distance and was just using, using it as something, as an instrument for, for a specific end. Um, and so I stopped writing it and I wrote Tell Me How It Ends, a very straightforward, short essay that follows the questions that children were asked in the priority docket. Uh, and somehow through that offers both an x-ray of the American immigration system, at least in what pertains this particular exodus, and as well a panorama of, of the exodus of, of, of these years that continues, of course, uh, into, into today. And once I did that, I was able to go back to the novel and not think of it as some kind of political hammer with which to bang your heads, uh, which you, you would have hated, uh, and, I, and I did too, and think of it as, as what a novel is, right? Which is a space, a slice of life, as André Gide used to say, in which people make love and fight and pee and think and exist, right? So, so the novel became, became that. Uh, as well as a space in which to question how the hell do we document political violence, political crises of the present through fiction? What kind of instrument is fiction? How, how does fiction enter into a conversation with the present and add anything of value to it? At some point there, I was, I was contacted by a radio producer who wanted me to, to do a, like a radio thing about all of this. And at first I was interested in the idea, until one day they told me that they wanted to record real voices of real kids uh, simulating an interview in the court. And I said, whoa, reenactment? Like, what, what is this? Like, you want me to reenact? Uh, and I said, no, 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 this is exactly what I don't want to do. This is what I don't want my books to do, which is sort of to reenact in this way, appropriate, ornament with real suffering, with real something. Um, and so I said, I, I, I said, absolutely not, and I'm, I'm not, I didn't continue to work on that. But that helped me to think about what I was doing in the novel more clearly. I realized that I couldn't and I didn't want to report on the immediate present at all in the novel. And the way that I ended up threading the story of, of migration in the novel is, of course, through radio, through the kids reenacting in the backseat, but also through a third-person narrator that tells the story of seven kids riding atop a train. 
migrating across national boundaries. You never know exactly where they are, and if it is at all North America, Central America, or where. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a narrative composed from bits and pieces of other narratives in, 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 in literary history that have dealt with journeying, immigration, descending into an underworld of sorts. Um, I guess one thing I should say in, in this respect as well is that, that with that narrative, I wanted to somehow intersect the very the American genre par excellence of the road trip novel with a story of journeying that perhaps is more common to Latin America, which has to do with journeying as a form of journeying downwards, so spiraling into a deeper level of consciousness or spiraling into some kind of underworld, right? I'm thinking here primarily of Juan Rulfo and his masterpiece, uh, Pedro Paramo, but not only. And so I wanted sort of the, the typical American road trip to be intersected by this Latin American form, to, to put it uh, in very blunt and simplistic terms, therefore creating a, a kind of wider hemispheric narrative, right, of, of how, of thinking about us, us as a region, the US, Mexico, Central America, as a, as a corridor of, of migration that has, has been for so many years and will continue to be. Um, so yeah, the, 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 that, that narrative is composed of bits and pieces of journeys, of literary journeys. I'm going to get a tiny bit nerdy, but very, 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 it'll be fast. Um, so for example, like the narrative of journeying, by far in the Western, sort of in the Western tradition, Homer's um, Odyssey, book 11 is Home, uh, Odysseus or Ulysses descending to the Hades, to the underworld, to talk to his ancestors to figure out what the fuck he's gonna, sorry, what the hell he's gonna do with his life now that he's in the middle of this trip. And he talks to his elders and that same book, book 11, was translated not from Greek but from Latin by Ezra Pound into a very particular meter called Anglo-Saxon accentual verse, which makes English sound like German somehow. Um, and, I, and I was working with that, translating that back into Spanish, phrases, lines of poems such as Swartest night stretched over wretched men there, um, back into Spanish, back into English, figuring out cadence and rhythm, and, and composing in this way this, this narrative thread that, that carries um, that carries the novel and that carries an immigration narrative that puts immigration where I think it should be, which is in the, in the epics of humanity, the great epics of our existence, right? People who migrate, people who, who move and reinvent their lives, people who have the courage to begin again and to found something, to found a new, a new community within another and somehow uh, and I think that literature can do that, right? Literature, fiction has the power, of course, to resignify, to rename, to, to put story in the wider arc of history and remind us of our shared humanity. Right? It has the power, as, as Ruth was, was saying and quoting, to give us some clarity and hindsight and to, to remind us that, that the only thing we have between us 
are the stories that we tell each other, right? The love that we give each other, yes, of course, but the only thing we pass down are those little knowledges, ways of telling the world, ways of experiencing them, ways of experiencing the world, ways of, of articulating a narrative about ourselves and others. Right? So that is what that novel is about. Um, it's a novel about, about naming and renaming. So I'm going to close with this passage that has a lot to do with naming and renaming. <clears throat> Nouns. Unhappiness grows slowly. It lingers inside you, silently, surreptitiously. You nourish it, feeding it scraps of yourself every day. It's the dog kept locked away in the back patio that will bite your hand off if you let it. Unhappiness takes time, but eventually it takes over completely. And then happiness. That word arrives only sometimes and always like a sudden change of weather. It found us on our 10th day into the trip. I had called a number of motels in Graceland. None picked up except one. An old lady answered the phone, her voice like a distant fire crackling its way into my ear. Elvis Presley Boulevard in at your service. I wondered if I was misunderstanding her when she said, yes, ma'am, plenty of room here and a new guitar pool. But we find exactly that, a motel all to ourselves, a motel with a swimming pool in the shape of an electric guitar, a motel in which instead of a bedside Bible, there's an Elvis Presley songbook. A motel with Elvis Presley, everything, everywhere, from the hand towels in the rooms to the salt and pepper shakers in the breakfast area. The boy and his father stay behind in the parking lot, rearranging the daily puzzle of our luggage. And the girl and I run up to the room to pee. We climb stairs, walk past eerie Elvis wax statues, hundreds of pictures and cartoons, and Elvis piñata, an all-Elvis jukebox, small statuettes, yellowing t-shirts with a king's face nailed to the walls. By the time we make it to our room, we've understood, the girl in her own terms, that we're in some sort of temple or mausoleum. She's understood that this man is or was something important. She looks up at a photograph of a 30-something-year-old Elvis Presley hanging on the wall between the two double beds in our new room and asks, Is that Jesus fucking Christ, Mama? <laughs> no, it's Elvis. Mama, could you leave Papa and marry Elvis if you wanted? I try not to laugh, but I do. I say I'll consider it, but then I tell her I would accept he's dead, my love. This poor young man is dead. He is. Like Johnny Cash is dead. That's right. Like Dennis Joplin is dead. Yeah, that's right. When the boy and my husband walk in with bags and suitcases, we all change into our swimsuits and run down to the guitar pool. We forget the towels and the sunscreen, but then again, we're the type of family that has never taken a picnic blanket to a picnic or beach chairs to a beach. <laughs> the girl, so cautious and philosophical, in all her daily activities becomes a wild beast in the water. She is possessed. Delirious, 
beats on her own head and stomach like one of those post-hippie drummers who's been on LSD for too many decades. Her laughter thunders in her open mouth, all milk teeth and perfect pink gums. She howls as she jumps into the pool, wriggles her way to freedom from our nervous clutches, discovers underwater that she does not know how to surface, so we fish her out and hold her tight and say, don't do that again. Be careful. You don't know how to swim yet. We don't know how to embrace her boundless enthusiasm or her volcanic bursts of vitality. It's hard for the rest of us, I think, to keep up with the dashing, reckless train of her happiness. Hard for me, at least, to let her be when I keep on feeling that I have to save her from the world. I'm constantly imagining that she'll fall or get burned or be run over, or that she'll drown right now in this guitar-shaped swimming pool in Memphis, Tennessee, her face in my mind, all blue and swollen. A friend of mine calls this the rescue distance the constant equation operating in a parent's mind, where time and distance are factored in to calculate whether it would be possible to save a child from danger. But at some point, like flipping a switch, we all stop calculating grim catastrophes and just let go. We tacitly agree to follow her instead of expecting her to stay back with us in our safe and capacity for life. We howl, Allulate, roar, we plunge and resurface to float on our backs, looking up at the cloudless sky. We open our eyes wide inside the burning chlorine water. We emulate shitty fountain statues, spouting water from our mouths. I teach them a choreography for all shook up that I vaguely remember being taught by a childhood friend. A lot of shoulder shaking and some hip back and forth in the us of the song. And then, when the spell the girl has cast on us finally evaporates, we all just sit by the edge of the pool, dangling our legs in the water, catching our breath. Later that night, lying in the dark of our motel bedroom, my husband tells the two children an Apache story about how Apaches earned their war names. We listen to him, silent. His voice rises and whirls around the room, carried across the thick, hot air that the ceiling fan stirs its cheap veneer blades squeaking a bit. We lie face up, trying to catch a breeze, except the girl. She lies on her tummy and sucks her thumb, her suck rhythm in syncopation with the cyclical rattle of paddles bubbling in the ceiling fan. The boy waits for his father to finish the story and then says, if she were an Apache, her warning would be loud thumb. Me, the girl asks, unplugging her thumb from her mouth and raising her head in the dark, not convinced, but always proud to be talked about. Yeah, loud thumb or suck thumb? No, no. My war name would be Grace, Land Memphis, Tennessee. Or Guitar Swimming Pool, either or. <laughs> Those are not Apache names, right, Pa? The boy asks. No, they're not, my husband confirms. Guitar Swimming Pool is not an Apache name. <laughs> well, then, I want to be Grace, Land Memphis. She says, it's Graceland, Memphis, you moron, the boy informs her from the heights of his now 10-year-old superiority. Fine then, so I'll be Memphis, just Memphis. She says this with the authoritative assurance of bureaucrats closing their plastic windows, taking no more requests, no more complaints, and then plugs her thumb right back into her mouth. We know this side of her. 
When she's made up her stubborn little mind, there's no way to convince her otherwise, so we defer, respect her resolve, and say no more. What about you, I asked the boy. Me? He would be Swift Feather, his father immediately suggests. Yeah, that's right, Swift Feather. Elma, who's she? He asks. My husband takes his time to think about it and finally says, she would be Lucky Arrow. I like the name, and I smile in acknowledgement or in gratitude. I smile at him for the first time in days, maybe weeks, but he can't see me smile because the room is dark and his eyes are probably closed anyway. Then I ask him, and you, what would your war name be? The girl chimes in without taking her thumb out of her mouth, lisping, feathering, and thumbing her words. Pa, he's the Elvis, or the Jesus fucking Christ, either or. <laughs> My husband and I laugh, and the boy reprimands her. You're gonna go to hell if you keep saying that. He probably chastises her more because of our praising laughter than because of the content of her statement. She certainly does not know why she should be censored. Then, taking her thumb out of her mouth, she asks, Who's your favorite Apache Pa, Geronimo? No, my favorite is Chief Cochise. Then you get to be Papa Cochise, she says, like she's handing him a gift. Papa Cochise, my husband whispers back. And slowly, softly, we fall asleep, embracing these new names. The ceiling fan slicing the thick air in the room, thinning it. I fall asleep at the same time as the three of them, maybe for the first time in years. And as I do, I cling to these four certainties. Swift Feather, Papa Cochise, Lucky Arrow, Memphis. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment, but first, in her talk, Valeria Luiselli says that immigration narratives and stories of people who migrate, move, and have the courage to reinvent their lives should be in the epics of humanity, the great epics of our existence. If that resonates with you, we think you'll love Sal's upcoming talk with novelist, essayist, and poet Luis Alberto Urea, the author of 17 works, including, most recently, The House of Broken Angels. This book centers on the De La Cruzes, a family on the Mexican-American border, as they celebrate two beloved relatives during a raucous and moving weekend. Araya will present at Seattle Arts and Lectures on Wednesday, May 20th. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Just for Sal On Air listeners, we have a special promo code that will get you 30% off tickets. Just enter the code Araya30 at checkout. That's U-R-R-E-A 30. Now, here's more from Valeria Luiselli and Q&A moderator Florangela Davila. I feel a little mean breaking that spell that she just cast on all of us. I, um, I was an immigration reporter about 12 years ago, and I remember feeling um, like I couldn't have a decent conversation with anybody. Um, that there were so few of us even going to conferences, immigration reporters were so small, nobody seemed interested. The power of the book that you've written, the power there is that it feels so timely. It, I kept thinking over and over of all the people who I knew could connect to the book because of the story. So, and we heard Ruth and you echoing the, the that how it reminds us of our humanity. But 
My first question is, does literature have a role to play in not just reminding us of our responsibility, but in the responsibility that we need to take? It's a good question. I, I think that I mean, literature is so vast, and there's so many different vehicles within literature, right? Or so many different ways of, uh, of thinking about the art of writing. And it's kind of clear to me in my own practice, and I wouldn't want to be prescriptive about others and how they envisage their own practice, that when I, when I write fiction, I can't think of it in terms of uh, a call to action. I can't think of it as, as a way to, um, to educate politically or to even report on the world. Like, I think that, that I started sensing in me a kind of, like, um, a kind of arrogance in trying to do something like that, right? In trying to, in trying to use fiction as a way to, to uh, convince, or and, and I and I got very annoyed with myself, and disappointed, and then when I when I when I wrote Tell Me How It Ends, I, I think I was able to think of, of 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 it as an instrument, and especially as an instrument, as a as a as an object that was going to circulate in the world in the small world at the end in which readers of books exist. Um, so it could be, it was probably going to be talked about, I thought, in, in the radio and some newspaper columns and some articles and some... Enough, I thought, to bring this conversation into spaces that usually ignore the discussion, the, the larger discussion on immigration. I must remind you, I was, I was writing this in 2015 where immigration in this particular exodus had disappeared from the headlines, was treated like headline material for a while, and then disappeared completely, although the crisis was still there. And so I, I wanted to, to make an intervention in, 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 the, in the dialogue. Um, and I did, did think of this book as, as a book um, that was a, a reminder and uh, maybe a, a mirror with which to look at ourselves more critically in the way that we think about, talk about, write about, and ultimately uh, uh, see, envision immigration. You, um, I read that you did your undergraduate dissertation on immigration? It's really embarrassing, but yeah, I mean, it's a really bad <laughs> dissertation. <laughs> well, I mean, you've been thinking about these issues for a long yeah, time and, yeah. and we could even start we could start there or we could just start with the notion of the fact that you you moved around so much in your childhood and I'm curious about how that influenced your sense of otherness and foreignness and boundaries and connectiveness mm. um, can you tell us a little bit about all the different places you've lived and were there moments that really were turning points that you can sort of pinpoint to what you're exploring now in this novel? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I lived in, indeed in many different places, from South Africa to Korea to India. To, and in many of those places, being Mexican was n not easy. I mean, definitely in a way easier than being Mexican here or 
being Mexican in certain contexts here in the US. But Mexico is, as many other nationalities, but is seen in these like layers of cliches and, um, and identity burdens that are difficult to deal with, right? There's all these things attached to Mexicanity, like sort of the lazy Mexican, the lying Mexican, the, the always late Mexican. I am often late, but, um, <laughs> but I always try not to be. And all these sort of negative cliches around Mexicanity that even as a child, I felt that I had to, in a kind of Quixotesque way, fight against, right? And, and show that it wasn't that way and that sort of prove that, that those stereotypes were just stereotypes. And I mean, I think that many, many people, many children, many adults experience, experience that frustration of, of belonging to... Uh, a nationality that is misunderstood and uh, seen through a lot of layers of voluntary ignorance, I guess, what it, that's what it is. Um, so I, I was not only always foreign, but always sort of felt a kind of tension with my nationality that I, or, or between my nationality and the world around me. And I think that when I came to the US for the first time, before I came to live here, before I came to live here, I, I wanted to be a dancer. I was not a great dancer, but I, I wanted to study contemporary ballet. So I came here for a summer, and the negotiation was, I'll do an internship in the UN. Uh, if I, with my family, the negotiation was, I'll do an internship in the UN, but please pay for my dance classes. And uh, they said, fine, okay, yes. And I came to the US to try out uh, try to get into a company that I didn't get into. Which uh, the Limon Company. Um, and work in the UNDP, the United Nations Development Program. And I started writing my, my undergrad dissertation then. And it was then that I observed sort of the, the very liminal existence that my, my linguistic and cultural community in the US occupied or lived in, right? So the, Sort of all the in, in New York in particular, the m many Mexican men who drive or who ride their bicycles, kind of invisible to the rest, mm. always carrying their chains, their bicycle chains, kind of crosswise of, on their chest, vaguely resembling Emiliano Zapata with his crosswise <laughs> belt, right? These guys on their bicycles that just speed through the city carrying so many things and are never kind of recognized or seen by others. And then they descend into the kind of underworlds of the, 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 the basements of delis and restaurants where no one sees them either. And, where, and, I, and, I, and I spoke to a lot of people in that, that summer, connected to a lot of uh, Mexican people living here. I had never really spent that much time in the US. And I started thinking of my dissertation, my oh. thesis, and it was a very well-intentioned and poorly written uh, critique of John Rawls's theory of justice. Has anyone, does anyone read John Rawls just still? Uh, that attempted to argue that, that the theory of justice did not contemplate undocumented uh, people as part of the social contract and was therefore philosophically not sound. Um, but I was very into analytic philosophy, so it was all about proving and axioms and whatever. So, uh, that was my first engagement, um, my first, I guess, serious engagement. But living here now 10 years, I 
became involved with immigration in many different ways, mm. and not with immigration, became involved with, with my community and communities in many different ways. Do you think that notion of um, kind of being dismissed, being marginalized, not being in the mainstream, that started from when you lived in different countries, do you think that fuels your power of observation? Hmm. Nobody's paying attention to you, so then you have power in noticing everything else. I mean, I definitely think that when, when one is always a foreigner, you're kind of ghostly, right? You, 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 you're always kind of a newcomer um, or about to leave, so you inhabit a kind of ghostly existence, which then, if you can... Um, you can appropriate that and make it yours. It is a way of, um, of always sitting in a space of observation, right? Always observing others. And I think that, yes, I mean, that one of the reasons that I write is that foreigners put me in a space of constant observation. You have to also survive. Like, you, as a kid especially, to survive in the very complicated ecology of school, you have to observe and understand the codes and then somehow embody them so that you can navigate that, right? So I, I definitely ascribe my, my being a writer to that and also to the fact that my two sisters are super loud and <laughs> super uh, bossy and, and are very good at telling stories. So I never got a chance at the table they got all the attention. They, they were, they're, always, they're super loud and they tell the stories and, they, and, and it was like, Bleh. and then <laughs> nothing. So I guess that writing is my, like, my revenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, why, uh, I'm curious about some of the narrative devices that you use uh, in the novel. The, um, the, there's this assumption, I think, for people who are familiar with your, your previous book, The Work of Nonfiction, The Essays, mm -hmm. um, that the couple are Mexican, um, that it's you, uh, perhaps, and we don't, you don't really tell us much about who they are, even their race or ethnicity, and there might be a hint here and there. Mm -hmm. the, the notion of having blended family, so there's two kids, but each kid comes from the parent, but then from other... You know what I mean. Um, the siblings, the step-siblings. Um, uh, and also using the construct of a, a marriage that is about to dissolve. Setting all those things, those elements. Um, was curious about why you chose to put those in the novel. Yeah, I think, I mean, well, first of all, in terms of identity and identity politics, and I, I am very uncomfortable with, um, with the way that... Um, one arrives in the U.S. and is handed like an identity welcome package, and that's it. That's what you got, right? You get what you get, and you don't get upset. Um, and it's very, um, it's very, const it constrains. It constrains deeply, and constrains in terms of the expectations that others have of what you are supposed to write about, what you are like when you are heard and when you're not. So if you're a woman of color, you can really only write about and from there and, not, and expect it to remain there. And uh, like, why not, like, I don't know, write sci-fi about... I mean, of course, many writers do it. They just don't, don't, don't give a damn as they should not give a damn and do whatever they want to do. But, but identity, um, especially like the, the politics around minority culture in the US is very suffocating, right? 
So, so I was very, it was very clear to me that I wanted to write a novel in which the identities of the family weren't so clear. So there are no proper names, right? If you call someone Maria or Julia, or uh, then immediately there's like a, of course, like a, an input, like a, from the reader's point of, from the reader's point of view, uh, uh, an assumption of identities. There's never a, dis a physical description of like hair color or skin color. Very, there are descriptions about what happens to the eyes of the girl when she's about to cry, how they swell up and get kind of red around the edges and the, the way she sucks her thumb. But, but I was very, very, very um, consciously not painting an immovable portrait of an identity that, that, is, that attaches so many assumptions to it. Um, but and they, they call, what I was curious about is how they call their parents, or the Ma boy does, Ma and Pa, yeah. which I, I was, you know, that is not a common way. I think I was sort of did a, a quick survey in, in, in the newsroom, you know, not mom, not mother, not mommy, but Ma, which to me reminded me very much of Little House on the Prairies or the Waltons. <laughs> there was something very Americana yeah, in yeah, yeah. that term and your decision, why did you choose that? Well, it could also mean it, you could elongate the vowel and say ma, or you could think of it as a short vowel and say ma, and then it's another, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's still, it's still, a, it's not an empty signifier, ma, but it's it's ample enough that that a lot of a lot can be assumed into it or read into it, right? I mean, and I think many readers might come to the novel with the assumption that it's a Mexican family, but indeed. Mm, there are several uh, there are several markers that contradict the idea that it's an entirely Mexican family. Right. The the husband is really not he doesn't speak Spanish, <laughs> for instance. Uh, so so yeah, I mean I, I don't know I I think that that literature should be as well, like a, a place in which we can move more freely and like free from the bounds of all the identity assumptions that that usually, I think, cloud um, or frame, sometimes cloud, sometimes frame, and maybe overframe our understanding of reality. I'm grateful that you brought up the um, part about being a dancer or studying dance, because I was uh, really taken by the, the, the sound, that both of the, the characters, the, the, the two adult characters are um, documentarians. It starts with this notion of, um, one of the, the father, the husband, has a boom mic, so there's this notion of space and distance. I think the wife has the handheld recorder. Um, there's so many references. I kept thinking that every radio reporter, or anybody who loves radio, but especially radio reporters, anybody who collects sound will love this book because of, it talks about process and just the, the power of observation. So I'm curious if you thought, um, and certainly the, the climax of the book, which I will not give away, um, there is a, a such a moving element of rhythm and pace. So I'm curious if, you, if dance informs your writing because you are so connected to documenting in that way and using that in, your, in this book. Well, it definitely does, at least in terms of compensation. I was a dancer with, with a bad sense of rhythm, which really, <laughs> really is like a, a bad... Uh, just like a bad combination for someone to be a professional dancer. <laughs> I was really good at, um, at like, 
understanding it rationally, but then there was something not natural about my relationship to one, two, three, four, one, two, three. like I had, to, I had to say it to myself somehow. And I think that maybe in compensation, I, I write with my ears completely. Like I, I it, for me it's all about uh, rhythm and meter and rhythmic cadence and about like finding finding like a foreign foreignization to cadence as well, right? So some of the best passages of the novel, in my perspective, are ones that I wrote in like simultaneously in English and Spanish, mm -hmm. so going back and forth like one line in one language and then the other in another and finding like the, the different rhythms and how they might be translated into one language and the other. And I thought at some point very naively that I could write the entire novel like this. Uh, also because I was getting uh, consistently bullied by my, my editors in Mexico because they knew that I was writing in English and they said, how dare you write in the language of the empire, right? Like, what are you doing? And um, it had happened with Tell Me How It Ends before. I, I, I had written it in English and then I wanted someone to translate it into Spanish and publish it in Mexico that way. And so we had a meeting and our meeting uh, my, my editors are my age and we kind of began publishing together so we function more like a soccer team than like a than anything else and so they took me into a cantina a bar and then at the fifth tequila they forced me to sign this serviette in which I said every time that I write anything in the language of the empire I will self-translate it as a kind of penitence and, <laughs> <laughs> and so and so I, 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 I did stick to my, I kept my word with tell me how it ends. And I was kind of glad that I did because it became a much more complex book when I had to rewrite it in Spanish and think and have like a mental fight, not only with the US and the US, the US government, but now with the Mexican government. Equally fucked up, both of them. So I, the, the, the novel, the, the book just like, or doubled at least in size. The essay, in, original essay in English, doubled in size because now I was fighting against two governments, um, thinking and having a dialogue with my 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 two linguistic communities, the one in the U.S. and the one in Mexico, right? Two places in to to where I belong in different ways and different modes, but where I belong. And um, anyway, it worked, but with a novel, it didn't work. Or at least I try some passages like that and they are lovely, but a, a, a novel is about rhythm. It's, and it's about rhythm the way that like, swimming is about rhythm, or walking, or running. Like, it, the, you have to find a, a kind of respiration that takes you all the way. Um, especially with, not with poetry, as, I mean, poetry in a different way, but a, a novel needs this kind of sustained respiration. Um, and working the way I was working, um, I, it could have been a great series of poems, but, but that's not what I was doing. So I gave up on that idea and just wrote it in English and also did not keep my word and someone else is translating it into Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, the beauty of having the physical book um, are the Polaroids that are included mm -hmm. in the book that have re that reference. Can you talk a little bit about the photos how they are, they're referenced in the book, who took yeah. the photos, and um, 
My husband is reading the book as an audiobook, and I think it's your voice at the beginning. I'm curious about your notion of how this book should be consumed. If you're doing the audiobook, you don't get the joy of seeing the list of all the elements that are in the archive yeah. boxes, and then you miss out as well in terms of the photographs. I think you can download a PDF with the pictures, but I may be wrong. Um, yes, I, I, I read my own audiobook, and it's something that I'll never do again. It's the hardest thing that I've ever done. I got bronchitis afterwards. Um, it's also very frustrating because the book is already out, and then you realize, like, why the hell did I use the word usurped or, like, usufruct? Or, like, what? Like, what? And you can't do anything about it. It's too late. Um, but it's a good learning experience as well, like, uh, and just in terms of getting to know your book as a, as, a, as a thing in the world and no longer something that you're in the process of of, of uh, making and, and a space in which you're living, because you're living, you're living with a, a book when you're writing it, right? My, my daughter used to make fun of me. I would put her to bed at night and then go up to my studio to work. And so she would say, oh, you're going with your imaginary friends now, Mama, right? And yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is that, right? Um, and then you, you, you asked about, um, about the photographs. Mm -hmm. So the photographs were just a way, so I, in many other, not many, in some other projects that I've undertaken, books that I've begun, I, I document through different means, not only writing, but through sound recording or photographing, or, because I find that doing so allows me to hear or, or, or see in a much more attentive way, just even, not a telephone, because a telephone is a completely different animal, and this is not a fetish or romanticism about older cameras, but really, like, if you have a camera in your hand, you're already seeing differently. You're already photographing before you photograph, right? So it, it's, a way of, it's a way of observing. Just as when you have a, a, a recorder and you're trying to sample sound, you're listening differently. Or when you have a notebook, too, I guess, and are recording or documenting, you're already writing, right? So, so I often use other methods of documenting because I'm also interested in the relationship between the process of, of composing a novel or a work in general and the final result of that and how those two things relate to each other. Or to th say it in different words, how I'm interested in the question of how to shorten the distance between process and final result in such a way that the process reflects in the final result, in such a way that the process leaves kind of fingerprints on the final result, right? So that if I documented through pictures and, um, and uh, sound recording, some, there's some kind of debris or remain of that in the final result, right? Anyway, so I took pictures at the beginning of before I knew I was writing a novel. And a year later, after taking notes for a year and thinking, am I going to write this in English, write this in Spanish, is this going to be an essay, is this going to be... All the procrastinating kind of questions that I asked myself for a year or so before I actually write. Um, I, I, was, I had to go to Berlin and, and show some of my work, my work in progress. And I ended up showing the, the photographs because it, it was in a gallery space. I had to sit with the photographs 
with a for like with them for about a week, and I sort of arranged them into sentences and rearranged them and found a narrative or this other. And it was thanks to the photographs that I was I was able to find the beginning of something. Like I sat, it was thanks to arranging and rearranging that archive that I sat down one night finally in the computer and just started. And later, for a long time, I wondered if the if they were just a catalyst for me, or if they were going to be embedded in the novel, and how they would be. Would they be kind of an illustration of what was said? No, that seemed really boring. Would they be in a kind of tension with what was being said? Maybe, but how? Anyway, so it was a, a, it's a long, it was a long process of deciding what kind of relationship there would be between text and image. And uh, at the end, they are where they are. You'll see when you read the book. I, I just love the fact that uh, you're talking about storytelling and documenting um, the undocumented, and you have all these different ways of acknowledging the, the, the power of sound, the power of photography, the power of words, and then ultimately the voices and who, who needs to be telling these people's stories, um, the notion of echoes even um, when you're, uh, during the road trip. Uh, this is a question from the, the audience. I'm specifically curious about your depiction of the Apache as a disappeared and forgotten tribe of the past that a lead character is obsessed with tracking, the husband, but who seems to have no awareness of Apache people still living in the Southwest today. Yeah, totally, I agree. I mean, this is, it, this is something real, right? And the... And I think that it, it is, it happens often in, in narratives around Native American nations um, that they're talked about as if, as if they don't exist anymore, right? It's a conversation I've had with many friends uh, who are Native American and, the, and, and sort of the way that, that the, the myth reproduces the violence, right? Or the storytelling reproduces the violence. And yes, indeed, I mean, what can I say except yes, I agree. The, the, one of the characters in the story who, who talks about the, the Chiricahua Apaches talks about the, the Apaches as if they no longer existed. Um, and the children kind of in the backseat absorb that story and, but link it then to, to the removal. So the, they link the story of removal of, of Native Americans to the story of removals, of meaning deportations, right? So, I mean, it's, again, sort of the, the way that knowledge is passed down but then repassed back to, it, to the adult world and combined and confused. Uh, but but I, I, I just, uh, wherever you are, yes, I agree. The husband definitely doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not going to say as often happens because there's probably a lot of husbands here. <laughs> but yeah, that one doesn't. Uh, another question from the, from the audience. Um, literature and other forms of art helps us shed light on important stories. But how do we write, paint, etc., other people's stories in an ethical way without appropriating or gaining fame at the expense of others' suffering? Yeah, that's another question that is like something that I constantly grapple with, um, especially when you're writing fiction, right? It's um, precisely because I think fiction is not a 
a tool, a political tool, the way that a piece of nonfiction can be, then, then what, what, what is it going to be? And I, I mean, I don't think that... I mean, I think that one, one doesn't write from, from those categories, like fame, and then one, one writes grappling with sentence structure and meaning and what you're doing and what, where you're going to arrive that day. And, and then later there's a, you know, a, a reckoning and a revision of what, what you've said, how you've said it, what you want to do with what, you're, with what you're fabricating, right? And I think one of, the, one of the questions that for me was a constant one was, how do I write? about um, this, particular, this particular exodus without uh, simply using the stories that I've, I've heard in court, the kids that I work with, the kids that I teach in the detention center, and sort of just reproducing, sort of. And I, I mean, it was, it, it's something it, that I grappled with years ago uh, in Mexico when the drug wars started. A lot of people, a lot of uh, writers in my generation and others started writing about the drug wars, very much without, um, without a, without a, without a filter, just really sort of directly reproducing in violence, in, in fiction, the violence that we were all seeing on the news or in reality. And I had a very, I was younger, so I was a little bit more, um, I don't know, I don't know, not, not as, not as flexible in my thinking, as maybe I am now, but I, I found it um, terrible. I dismissed the sole idea of even writing about the drug wars. I, I thought that's simply non-ethical, right? Um, of course, I was wrong in many ways, because there are many writers that, that did something very interesting and very powerful and meaningful with the way that we felt Mexico was falling apart in those years. And I feel similarly with, with writing about this immigration crisis, although I think that the story won't end, the circle won't close until the generation of kids arriving here is old enough to tell their own story. And they will. And I mean, part of the work that I am engaged now is in teaching creative writing in detention spaces, hoping that one, two, who knows how many kids there Kids, I think kids, but they're really teenagers, will maybe one day tap back into something that maybe mm. they discovered in writing and will, will, will take it elsewhere, right? And I, that's kind of how it is. The people that, that touch us somehow, give us something when we're that age, um, or when we're given something like the capacity to, to write our story or to find in writing some kind of meaning and something else, then sometimes we're able to take it further when we're older, and that's, that's how I think about that story now, or my role in, that, in doing that. The spark. That, that spark. That spark. That, uh, my, my final question um, is, per, is a personal one about um, status. Your previous book talked about applying for a green card, and I'm, I'm wondering, I'm the child of immigrants, and, and I watched my mother make the decision of applying to be a U.S. citizen. And I remember the pause and that decision of pledging allegiance to one country meant 
saying no to the other country and patriotism. And it's a, it's a, it's a challenging decision. And I'm wondering, given where we are now, given everything that you've learned, have you thought about, have you applied for citizenship? Are you choosing not to? Where, and if, if you're able to take that step, the privilege that you are able to do, given that sense that so many people want that and are unable to. Um, yeah, I do. Th I mean, I, I do think about that, and I do want to. I will apply for citizenship when time comes. I might wait until this administration is gone, um, because I. I mean, also, but then not not too much, because I do want to vote next round, and I think I might be able to. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I I am. I am a romantic in many ways, but I am also pragmatic. And I am also 35, and I have never voted, which sucks. Um, because I'm either not in Mexico, or didn't, didn't do the thing on time in the consulate to be able to vote from, from abroad. And I also inherited an Italian nationality from my grandfather. Uh, but the Italian government sends you the ballots one month after the elections. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've never voted in Italy either. So I've never voted and I'm really looking forward to. <laughs> so yes, I will become a citizen. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to thank the audience for coming out tonight. Uh, for Seattle Arts and Lectures event, which always reminds us of how great it is to live in this city yeah. uh, for a moment like this. And to please give a round of applause to Valeria Rossetti. Thank you so much to Valeria Luiselli and Florangela Davila for joining us on the South Stage. Thanks as well to the Seattle Arts and Lecture staff, board, and community. And thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by the Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, make sure to subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why not rate and review us so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.